912 ambulance, 75 year old male back pain, 211 Silver Hollow Road, between Clean Road and Cross Patch Road. Hi, welcome to Push Dose Medic, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. This podcast was created to build a bridge between the knowledge gained in the classroom and the clinical setting. So thanks for listening, sit back, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, guys, to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. I'm your host, Jaron. I hope everyone's been well. Um, This week, we're going to start out with something a little bit new. It's going to be a new segment. Uh, I haven't come up with a good name yet, maybe Roundtable Medic, I'm not sure. Um... But instead of just talking about one clinical topic, I want to start getting into research. I'm a big proponent proponent of evidence-based medicine. I believe if you're going to do anything or change a practice, there needs to be some type of evidence-based medicine behind it. Um, Two studies have come out uh, in the recent uh, news that I found really interesting were the PART and the Airways 2 trial. These were basically two studies comparing which is better. So I've brought along one of my friends and co-workers today to help me discuss and argue what is better. So without further ado, let's get into it. So I have with me here Ben. He is uh, he used to be on my shift. He's my good friend. Um, he is now an FTO with uh, our EMS agency. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Ben. Uh, I've been in EMS for about 13 years now, past uh, seven years as a paramedic. Um, in addition to my work as a practicing paramedic, I've also been involved with EMS education and training, as Darren alluded to, and uh, pretty stoked to be on the show. All right, thanks. So um, last uh, last month, February, well, two months ago now, since today's the first, um, I taught, a, along with Ben, a difficult airway class, and it went great. We talked a lot about teaching people how to utilize good technique in managing a difficult airway. Um, we knew we were going to have difficult questions, and surprisingly, we only had one difficult question, and that was a, um, a fireman and intermediate asked, why don't you just drop a king? And that alluded to 15, 20 minutes of arguing back and forth what is better, inserting a innovation or inserting an uh, endotracheal tube or dropping a king or LMA or IGEL, whatever you have. So we decided to come out and sit down and talk about the two clinical trials that they did, Airways 2 and the PART trial. Um, so we're going to just discuss those, see which one's better, and just give our own takes on them since we've both been in medicine for a little while and we both used both uh, the IGEL and the King Airway. All right, guys. We're going to go ahead and get started, and we're going to start out with the Airways 2 trial. Um, these are both uh, very similar trials, uh, both uh, randomized clinical trials. The airway was actually done in the UK, and the only difference it really is they use an iGel instead of a King Airway. Um, I know most of the places I worked use King Airways, but I have used an iGel as well. Um, have you used iGel at all? Yeah, actually, I've never worked in a system that's used the iGel. Um, so I practice it on mannequins, but I've never used it in uh, real-life clinical practice. Yeah. So I think they're just easier because they don't have balloons. Um, you're taking fail points away. No, I mean, so. it seems like a pretty a pretty great tool. Um yeah, but for whatever reason, it seems like, at least in the areas that I've been practicing in, uh, the King Airway is definitely corner of the market on uh, the uh, blind insertion airway device. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the Airways 2 trial is not as inter- interesting. Um, we read through them, and 
they basically found there is a small difference, um, about a 0.4% difference in survival between intubation and supraglottic. But overall, there was no difference between the study of them inserting an uh, endotracheal tube or a eye gel. Yeah, and so I think it's I think it's totally worth noting. So like, yeah, I mean, if you look at the the absolute numbers, there definitely is a small difference. You know, I mean, you're looking at a difference of um, six point eight percent of patients surviving with a good neurological outcome in the intubation group versus six point four percent in the supraglottic airway group. Um, but again, I mean, that's I mean, you know, it's not reaching statistical significance as established by this trial. So it's hard to know whether that's just where that is a trend towards significance or just, I mean, random noise in the study, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's not something you would be able to take to your medical director and say, hey, we should change this up and start dropping SGAs compared to innovation. Um, I mean, even if those numbers are real, I mean, you're really talking about some pretty some pretty small change. We're talking about a 0.4% change um, in the uh, the rates of survival with a neurological, with a good neurological outcome. I mean, not that that's not something that we want. I mean, we would want any improvement, but, you know, I mean, you're not exactly talking about um, a, a huge change in terms of outcomes, even if that number was accurate. So they also, we'll get to the PART trial soon as well, but they also had pretty outstanding numbers on their first pass attempt and just their success rates in ventilation. So they're hitting the high 80s into 90s. Um, I only think this because they have curbside echo and curbside Reboa. Um, they have, you know, in Paris, they have, they do um, ECMO on the curbside and Reboa right. on curbside. So their training is a lot more. Awesome. Yeah, I wish we could do that here. <laughs> um, it's a lot more advanced than it is in America. So I, I can see why they're dropping data like that because they are a lot more advanced. Um, what are your takes on that? Why do you think, do you think that's because they're so more advanced? Is that why the numbers are so high? So, I mean, I really would be, um, you know, I'm not super familiar with the design of the EMS system in England. Um, so I don't have a great sense for that. I will say one thing that's really interesting is that if you look at the text of the study, they discussed that. Um, so direct laryngoscopy is the standard in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. and that for the purpose of this study, uh, video laryngoscopy or VL wasn't used at all. Yeah. Um, and so it's really interesting that they got pretty good first pass at- or first pass success rates without using um, video laryngoscopy. So even with the standard techniques, they're doing um, they're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, and um I think the part trial used direct um but it was discretion based uh, upon the paramedic. Um yeah, I think that's accurate. I have to double check the the text of that. I think that they let them use um, whatever it was that they. I think they they were allowed to use anything. But again, I think that um, Airways Two was exclusively DL as opposed to VL. Yeah, and that's pretty impressive with those numbers with using DL. So, right? Um, like I said, I'm not really familiar with their whole setup, how they how they train, but you know, I, I believe it's a four year degree, not a nine month cert like I have. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. Although I would totally have to double check that. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and switch over to the part trial. We'll come back to a few things with the airways, um, but the part trial was really interesting. I thought so. This was a also a RCT, a randomized clinical trial, and it was actually conducted in the USA. Um, so instead of the IGEL, they did the King Airway, and they basically studied the same thing: um, seventy-two hour survival on 
cardiac arrest, and good neurological outcome. Um, and these numbers were a lot different. Um, they basically came down to the conclusion that it's better to use a King King Airway in a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest for good survival and neurological outcome. How do you feel about that? Because yeah. I certainly don't ever use a King. I've dropped maybe three in my life. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think the... So, I mean, both these studies are actually pretty amazing. I mean, it's so rare to get randomized clinical trials in in pre-hospital medicine. It's pretty exceptional to get to, to get these two coming out so close next to each other. Um, so, I mean, I actually think that both Airways 2 and PART are pretty amazing pieces of evidence that we can't ignore. Um, but, so I thought PART was especially interesting. Um, and yeah, like, I think it's, I mean, I think it has the potential really to be a practice-changing paper, um, just based off of the statistically significant survival improvement that seemed to be conferred by the King Airway. Yeah. And um, the way they randomized this, you, it's not, they use 27 different agencies. So it's not like they used a cluster of agencies in one state. So it's not that North Carolina really sucks at airway management or Wisconsin really sucks at airway management. <laughs> they did North it throughout. Really now we're great. We're great. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, you know, at least a 95% success rate. Um, so, they did it throughout the USA. So it's a good, it's a good group. Um, it's a large study. Um, so it, it, it spreads the info out a lot. So we actually have some good numbers. Um, and the, I think they did the, was it 4,000, 3,004 subjects were enrolled in the study. So about half and half went to the King and the, and, uh, endotracheal tube. Um, what I found really, really, concerning about this was for one thing the 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 arrival to airway to start number so that was with the entire or the endotracheal about 13 or 14 minutes that can be concerning but after you know we taught the difficult airway and the proper positioning and preparation and pre-oxygenation i don't see that number as that long of a number um, i'd rather see that longer number and have a pre-oxygenated patient instead of that number being two minutes and then worse numbers on ROSC. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that, so, I mean, it's definitely, it's interesting um, that they did find that, uh, that it, it did take much longer for, or not much longer, it took several minutes longer with the establishment of an endotracheal tube versus the King LT. Um, and I think that probably shouldn't be super surprising to anybody who's, who's used those two things. You know, I don't know that that's, that in itself is a terrible thing, like you said. I mean, I'd rather have people taking some more time on the front end to prepare, position their patient, pre oxygenate all that sort of stuff, um, rather than just jumping in there with uh, with an ET tube, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say the, only, the one part that's concerning about that to me is that I hope that during that time that providers weren't tunnel-visioned on that procedure, uh, that weren't focused on establishing that, that airway, and ignoring other aspects of cardiac arrest care that we know to be beneficial for patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like timely defibrillation, high-quality CPR, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, and that's the, one, that, that's the one thing that I find a little concerning about that piece of data there, right? And one, one thing I was wondering about the minutes, too, and I, I doubt it's calculated in there, but was any time wasted on them finishing their compressions? So I know a few of the firefighters – some guys in the city they'll stop compressions for you to drop a tube right. and you're like no no keep going keep going um i don't care if 
I'm having trouble, you know, the compressions are really the most important part, I think. Absolutely. Um, so I wonder if that time was just elapsed a little bit because the guys were like, all right, I'm ready, but you haven't hit 30 yet. So right. go ahead and finish your compressions. Then I'll drop the tube and that pulse and CPR. Yeah. I mean, I think that definitely could figure into it. Um, I mean, also it would be really interesting. Um, and I, you know, again, I don't know exactly what, what data was collected by these study authors. Um, it'd be really interesting to get a little bit more into the weeds of the data to see if they, you know, collected data on, CPR quality on pauses and CPR stuff like that. Yeah. Um, because although it may not be best practice, I mean, I know it's not uncommon for people to for people to pause CPR while they're doing their innovation attempt. Um, which, if we're being honest, probably isn't the best for our patients. No. Um, but is I mean, it sort of depends on what you're what you're viewing as your most important outcome, right? If you're set on getting that tube, then it's easier if you're not trying to hit a bouncing target. Yeah. But if you're if you're focused on resuscitating your patient, then you probably really want to be focused on the stuff that we know matters. Yeah. Right? And it's like a catch 22 situation. Like which one do I focus on more? Right. Um, cause the compressions are really important, but also we learned that, you know, getting an IO is not as important, especially in a Sicily or something or a PA cause Epi's not really going to do anything. So right. compressions and oxygen are the most important. Which one do we focus on more? Right. I, I and think my advice would be to try to do it on a pulse check. Um, if you're confident enough, you're prepped, you know, you're pre-oxygenated for, you know, three to five minutes when they do a pulse check, go ahead and drop that tube. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's totally reasonable. Um, I mean, especially because, I mean, it seems like in the patients where you do get ROS before um, placement of any advanced airway, whether it's a King airway or superglottic airway, so we have pretty good outcomes of that. Not often that's simply as a result of using BVM ventilation as opposed to other things. I mean, I think it's just that patients who get ROS quicker are more likely to have better outcomes. Yeah, right? I, I think it's just common it sense. Seem like, it, it doesn't seem like that's having a negative impact on survival rates. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably not a – I think that's totally reasonable. I don't think there's necessarily a big – a big rush to feel like you've got to get this done as yeah. soon as possible. And I think, you know, that was a big thing we talked about in the presentations was we didn't want to tell people they had eight minutes, but you can potentially have up to eight minutes innovate somebody depending on your pre-oxygenation, lung compliance and all that and pre-existing lung uh, function. But it's not a rush, you know, the whole sliding into home plate, you got 30 <laughs> seconds to innovate, you better drop a tube now. Um, man, that's out, that's out the window. Um, I sit back and relax, you know, it's it's not a rush for me anymore. It's I'd rather s spend most of my time preparing that way. If I do have have a difficult innovation, you know, I'm I'm plenty prepared and they're pre-oxygenated, so right. it's definitely not a rush. But I think what's interesting um, is that so if some of this increased time was because people were taking more time to prepare, and this is one thing that's really concerning about the study, um, is that their first pass success rate was pretty poor across the board, right? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, I don't think they did prepare. Um, those looked like my numbers when I first graduated. Um, 44%. That's that's horrible. Yeah. Wait, was that the first pass? Unsuccessful first, first uh, airway attempt, gotcha. 44%. Yeah, that's... Uh, Compared to 11.8 in, uh, in the King, which I don't even know why the King, um, I guess, mis mis misseated... You know, the, the balloons are not seated um, in, the, in the mouth, right? I guess that's the uh, misplacement on the 11.8 of unsuccessful, but right. the 44% in the, uh, the 
into tracheal tube is pretty depressing. I know. I think we should be better than that. Right? And at it, do, you, do you remember offhand what the first pass success rate was in the Airways 2 trogs? I remember it being significantly better, um, but I can't recall it offhand. So, yeah, the uh, Airways trial met, didn't exactly measure first pass uh, success. They measured the uh, adequate ventilation within attempts, and their number was a little higher at 79%. Um, so we're not really comparing the exact same thing, but you can kind of make uh, comparisons that their initial attempt and success was a lot higher than the parts, the part study, which was only 44%. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, man, that's pretty, uh, that's some pretty sobering numbers for first pass success within a tracheal innovation. Um, you know, especially when you think about, um, they found a first pass success rate with the King LT of 90.3%. Yeah. So obviously it's easier to drop one of those. Um, it's, you know, one syringe and a very, very easy attempt. Oh, totally. um, but still be appalling. That's almost 50% of the time people are missing their intubation on the first pass attempt. Right. Um, and we don't know the demographics of every patient that was, um, that was intubated. So it could have been a vomitous airway. It could have been, you know, someone with tumors, masses, but honestly that I've intubated tons of people when that's never been a huge issue. Right. I think the vomit blood's the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about there's always a mass tumor. You can't flex the head and position them correctly. Right. I hardly ever come in that, that situation. Um, I want to go with the, maybe the, you better knock on wood. I don't want to, I yeah. don't want to ride with you um, on your first shift back after saying this. I probably have a kyphotic uh, Dude, you are, you are so patient with a giant tumor. At this point. Well, I'm prepared for it, though. I think. I think. <laughs> well, I, think I want to hope I am. Out. Yeah. We'll see you uh, next week after <laughs> the conference. Um, but maybe uh, maybe it's because we don't innovate enough, you know? How easy is it to innovate the mannequin you've innovated for 50 times a year? You know, oh, it's I'm, it's pretty easy. That's blind insertion. Yeah, I don't have to use eyes. I can blind insert that any day. Um, and I know when I when I got out of school, going from mannequin to a real person, I sucked because it's so much different. Oh yeah, the tongue does not stick stick there. It's flopping all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they say sweep to the left. Well, it doesn't go to the left. So I think that number is really just due to we don't innovate a lot. You know, how many times do we have full arrests in our county and it's when we get there and it's a DNR or uh, it's not workable? That happens more times than not. So, I th- No, I, I agree with that. Um, that's actually something that the, uh, um, the study authors alluded to in their, uh, um, in their discussion of that low endotracheal success rate. But, yeah, I mean, I think that we spend a lot of time, if we're being honest, you know, most folks that are operating in a 911 response center spend a lot of time responding to fairly low acuity calls. And as a result, you know, we're not necessarily getting a ton of experience with those low frequency, high consequence procedures like yeah. in the tracheal innovation. And I mean, when we do, we're, we're really excited. We're not focused. I mean, I haven't innovated someone in a while. So my next one, you know, we'll, which will probably be horrible because I jinx myself, but <laughs> I'm going to be excited. I'm probably going to be a little, you know, a little shaky. So overall, I think that's probably a big issue with it is just the training. And, um, you know, there's just not enough people in the OR that need elective tubes that we can actually train with. And I know um, our hospitals locally don't allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. Mission only allows us to do a few people um, through RTS to do it. So 
we're really not getting enough experience hands-on um, to be good at it. And you can only train someone so well with a mannequin. Like I try to make things as real as I can with my ideas, but there's no way you can make it exactly like a human. Right. Um, so I think that that might allude to the 44% of why it's so high, which is unfortunate, but at least it's not 50%. <laughs> well, at least there's that. Um, so I guess another disturbing number that is 50% is just the securing an airway. Um, so their success rate in endotracheal intubation was 51% compared to 89 on the, uh, the King airway. So 89% of the time they dropped a King successful ventilation. Again, low numbers, 50% of the time with the endotracheal tube. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that goes back to the training as well? Oh, I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, the King LT is a well-designed device to uh, be fairly easy to place. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's not going to be as difficult a procedure as innovation. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think obviously, you know, innovation can be done well uh, with the appropriate training and experience. Um, you know, I think there's a real question about how many paramedics are getting that, though. Yeah, uh, I think it's low. I don't. I don't think we spend enough time on proper training. Um, look at how many people that are spending a lot of time on the online training. Um, yep. It's easy to look at a PowerPoint, look at the anatomy and get your, how many hours of six hour, hours of airway and ventilation a year. Right. Um, and for some topics, I'm guilty of it. It's a lot easier than sitting in class, but I think we need to get away from the spectrum of sitting in, in front of a computer, racking up con ed and spend uh, stuff on lifelike mannequins, moulage, uh, something that gets our heart rate up the actual that compares to an actual person. Right. So we don't create more numbers like this. No, I mean, I would, I would tend to agree with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's uh, definitely a pretty, a pretty sobering statistic and one that I think we should probably endeavor to change. But so let me, let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. Um, so, the Airways 2 trial had a much better um, initial success rate with um, with intubation, um, and you know at least they didn't see the at least they didn't see a negative effect opposed with intubation as opposed to supraglottic airway, but still didn't see a benefit associated with it. Um, so you know I, I hate to be the one to say this, but you know how much how much bang for our buck are we really going to get for you know better innovation success in this patient population. Yeah. Um, as we said before, you know, the high levels of training, the bachelor degrees just be, to become a paramedic in the UK, I would actually think the there would be a positive outcome in the uh, innovation right. aspect of it, not a absolute minimal difference. Right. Um, yeah, that's very surprising. So then again, that's you want to backtrack. Is it really the education, the training, or – do the superglottics really have an upper hand? Right. Um, I don't know. We'll wait till another study comes out. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I think this is, I mean, so let's, let's put this into, um, let's translate this from academia into the, to the real world. Um, so before you read this study, um, what was your, what was your approach to airway management and cardiac arrest? Would you say? Um, I got a mindset of just, dropping a tube, um, securing a, an airway. Cause you, you're not, 
exactly securing an airway with a SGA. You're a superglottic, so it's above above the glottic opening. Um, you can still get gastric distension. You can still get vomitus. Um, so I don't see it as safe. Now I think it it goes back to that question we had in the in service is why don't you just drop a king? Well, sometimes you need to. Um, if the guy's hanging halfway out of a car, bleeding, and I have extended extrication time, I'm going to drop a king. Mm -hmm. It's very situational um, for me to decide, but you're around the mill, cardiac arrest, we find them on the floor, we get there, fire's doing uh, CPR, I'm going to go ahead and drop a tube. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess more or less I will try to drop a king in a trauma situation just because of the position of the patient or where I'm at or if I'm in a car or something like that. Mm -hmm. So. But I think as long as you can get an airway that you can get positive end title in a good waveform, right. I, I don't really care what you put in. Yeah, you know, think, uh, just get get me capnography is all I care about. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's I think that's totally fair. Um, so, reading these articles, has this changed your view on airway management any, or do you think, um, or? Do you feel like you're more or less on the same track as you were beforehand? I think the same track. Um, I was really hoping, you know, the the part is really interesting because of the the failure rates on the on the innovation. Yeah. Um, but then again, where did these numbers come from? I'd like to know if it's a really, you know, rural county like where I used to work, where we only innovate one person a year, mm-hmm. or are these like Wake County where they innovate tons of people a year. Right. Um, so. I think I'm going to stand the same way because they have a high level of education in the UK. They train their paramedics really well, but there's no difference between dropping a king and dropping a tube. So I think I'm still going to remain um, as just getting good capnography and dropping whatever tube I feel efficient in that situation. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's totally fair. Um, I mean, I I mean, of course, you know, cardiac management is a super. you know, it has to be done on a case by case basis, right? Um, so there, you know, certainly some yeah. patients who probably benefit from a superglottic airway. There's other patients who are probably going to benefit from an ET tube, and I think that in the end, in the day, you got to use your your individual judgment on that. Um, you know, I will say that have like seeing this study, especially the part study. I mean, my my thought is that if you ever had any doubts about whether or not you should drop a king airway. I think that that's been a race. I think that you should have, I think that folks should have no problems going to a king airway, especially if they predict a difficult innovation. They don't feel solid about their, um, their ability to innovate, to innovate. Or if it's a complex resuscitation and you've got a lot of things going on yeah. and, you know, taking the time to do a really solid innovation is going to be taken away from the other things that you need to be doing in those cases. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, in those, I think, my big takeaway from this is that, you know, it is twofold. So one, um, that you should not be hesitant at all to place a King airway at, at this, because yeah. again, if we're going strictly by the evidence, folks who received King airways did better, which um, evidence trumps your ego every day. Exactly. So there's exactly. leave the ego at the door and just drop a King if you need to. Right. And the other thing I would say is that if you're considering, uh, in the tracheal innovation as your go-to airway management tool in cardiac arrest, I, I think you've got to be being super diligent about maximizing your success rates and minimizing interruptions in other important aspects yeah. of care, right? So like, I was listening to a really interesting talk um, done by 
Dr. Jeff Jarvis. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah, from uh, Williamson County in Texas. Texas, yeah. Yeah, and so one of the things that he was kind of struggling with how to apply this study to his um, to his system, where they don't have a a 50% first pass success rate, right? Um, where they're not stopping compressions in yeah. cardiac arrest. And so I think that you know that if you want, like, if innovation is your preferred method for managing the airway man you've got to make sure that you're doing that you're doing it well you know if you're going to do it you got to do it right um and i think that's something that's definitely a takeaway from this because you know again i I think you've got to wonder you know in systems that are high performing that do have uh that do have higher uh first pass success rates i mean you, you have to wonder how applicable the study is yeah but i mean i think that i mean and the bottom line is that if you have any doubts um, about what you should be doing with the airway, drop the king. I mean, yeah. that's this is pretty. I, I yeah. think that's a pretty squarely evidence based so approach. So we can say that the king doesn't work has been debunked, obviously. Um, <laughs> but back to Dr. Jarvis, uh, he has a really high first pass success rate. Now right. I know a, a lot of it has come from the heaven mm-hmm. uh, thing, and I think it all really comes down to is uh, preparation. Um, being prepared for any kind of airway. Right. Um, that might be where the negative numbers were coming from is the difficult airway. And, you know, if you anticipate that, just drop a king. A king can pretty much solve all those issues. Um, and we ha- now see the evidence that the king is not going to do any harm. Right. Um, in some studies, obviously, it's going to do better. So right. just go ahead and do that. Um, I know when I first started, if I saw, because we had really long transport times, the fire department would get there 15 minutes before. If I saw King, I was pissed. I was like, ah, oh, that doesn't work. We need to get it out. But then you're scared to take it out because you've caused all that laryngeal trauma. Right. You're like, then I'm going to have a, a swollen airway I'm going to have to deal with. So I guess we'll just leave it. And, you know, you can't check your name off as airway management. You have to put other healthcare provider. Um, and it sucks and you think it didn't work. But this is why we practice with evidence-based medicine. Um, beforehand we were like kings suck or any kind of sga sucks because it's cool to innovate well now we have actual data that says it works and one paper saying it works better which is pretty awesome um i think that makes people feel at ease if they get in that situation they don't have feel so pressured to drop a innovation or a endotracheal tube oh I, i couldn't agree more i mean i think that um i think that a lot of times we get a little bit as paramedics we get really wrapped up in the ego trip of dropping it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, and hold my cape while I, uh, drop this tube. (laughs) And dude, I think that sometimes that can be really detrimental for our patients. Um, and I mean, I think this, this study really hopefully should dispel some of those myths and make people feel more comfortable with using that as an airway management option. Um, I mean, I would say if somebody gives you crap about dropping a King Airways as opposed to an ET tube, I think it's totally fair to say, well, I'm like killing my patient today, and that's why. I yeah, did it. Um, I think, I think more or less we get caught up on what boxes I get to check on, what cool skills like I got to crack, I got to innovate, I got to decompress, and then not looking at your your uh, your chart later on to see if the patient actually survived. But yeah, you crack somebody, you popped a chest open. Um, you did all this cool stuff. You put bilateral 14s, but you also killed your patient compared to me where I had a bad trauma and I just dropped a King and my patient's walking out of the hospital in a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. So stop on checking your boxes and actually care. Take the time to care for your patient and do the right thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it matters much more what we do 
for our patients than what we do to our patients. Yeah. And so, you know, we can feel pretty cool what we did to our patients by, you know, getting in there, have multiple attempts at intubation, you know, prolonged pauses in CPR, but eventually like, like, oh yeah, like we, like we nailed that too. Um, versus while it may not sound as cool to say, yeah, you know, I, I placed a King airway in all fairness, that's probably better than that first, in that first, management plan that i just described right? yeah because um, you may not have done as much to your patient you may not have had as many boxes to check or interventions to list on your pcr but you probably did a lot a, a lot more for your patient especially as these studies these studies have shown on the airways just the basically you put in the key and unlocking the door into the cardiac arrest um we know epi kind of kind of kind of does not work um, yeah, no, with neuro outcome, um, about there, right? but airway, we know does work. If we don't innovate or place an airway, we know they're not going to live. We know that. Um, but establishing an airway and doing it efficiently and quickly opens up the door to fix the other problems. Right. Um, now sometimes they do die from respiratory. Think your overdoses and stuff, but we have to think about the H's and T's and everything else. Uh, we get so caught up on the airway. We forget about everything else that's happening. Um, I'll say the patient was short of breath and tachycardic before they went down and they have AFib or we're looking at a possible PE, mm-hmm. but we're spending too much time up here and not focusing on maybe getting a good history or understanding what happened to the patient before they went down right. um, and actually transporting to the hospital, not messing around on scene forever. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's gotta be, I mean, it's, it's gotta be an individualized approach to it. Um, you know, I mean, I, again, I mean, I, like I said, I've, I've been, Talking the um, talking the advantages of the King LT and other superglottic airways. By the way, um, it's worth noting I don't have any financial disclosures at this point. That said, I wish I did. Yeah, if someone wants to pay me, I will shamelessly plug whatever medical device you got out there. So just just letting y'all know about that. Um, but I, I think eye gels are better. So if eye gels <laughs> listening and they want to, you know, pay me for those. That would be great. I don't. I don't have an opinion at this point, but someone can certainly pay me to. Because I make absolutely no money on this. <laughs> it costs me more money than what it's worth sometimes, but I enjoy doing it, so that's why we're here. But no, I mean, so again, I mean, I, I stickers are four dollars, by the way, and the website is launching in a, about a week or so. So <laughs> buy a t-shirt. But yeah, man. I mean, like, I I think that it's got to be an individualized approach. Like I said, I've been talking about you know all the benefits of the superglottic airways as shown by these studies, especially by the PARP study, right? Yeah. But, you know, there's certainly cases where that's going to fail. You know, if you have a patient who's gone out of cardiac arrest secondary to a foreign body airway obstruction, you're probably not doing that dude any favors. Yeah, by shoving, shoving a, a king airway yeah. in your gullet, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a patient who's going to need laryngoscopy, potential remo- removal of that foreign body and placement of a more advanced airway, right? Yeah. Like, so, again, I mean, it's got to be it's got to be an individualized approach. Well, that was the good thing about the part study because they were allowed to choose whatever they felt. So if the paramedic was more comfortable with dropping a King Airway, um, they used that. They didn't use the King Airway as a backup device. So it wasn't solely based on endotracheal intubation and using the SGA as a failed device. They used them interchangeably on based on how comfortable you are. So you had a good amount of bias in there, which this was the good type of bias. So you got a good, good selection of people using SGA and a, uh, a tube. Yeah. So, um, we're going to wrap it up a little bit. Ben, is there anything else that you found interesting about the, the trials that you wanted to talk about? 
So I, I guess the one thing that I would just try to put in context of the uh, of the park trial. So, I mean, you look at these numbers and they talk about you know essentially a two percent difference um, between King LT usage versus intratracheal innovation in terms of seventy two hour survival, as well as about a two percent difference when they looked at favorable neurological outcome um, at discharge. And yeah, I mean, two percent can seem like not a ton of folks. It's but not. You think about it. I mean, so there's 3,000 people that were enrolled in this trial, right? Yeah. So of those 3,000 folks, you know, if you're looking at a 2% improvement in survival, I mean, you're talking about, what, 60 people there? Yeah. That's 60 folks that had the opportunity or would potentially have the opportunity to walk out of the hospital with a good neurological function. And for those 60 folks, for those 60 families, man, that makes a huge difference. It does. And I think that's something that you got to keep in mind, um, that that's, I mean, that's that is a really that's a significant that's a you know really tangible um, survival advantage that uh, use of a superglottic airway potentially brings to the table. So yeah. it's kind of helpful sometimes to take that and put it into real world terms um, because it's certainly pretty meaningful to, for those patients and their families. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's what we're trying to do is you know not exactly save the life of every patient, but do better for our patients and. If you're looking to change practice or look for something that's going to give you a better rate of success and you're like, oh, 2%, why even why even bother? Um, but you break it down in those numbers, it's like, wow, do I say 2% and just brush it off or do I say a whole day's worth of patients? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we run between 50 or 60 calls a day and we're within 24 hours. So if you could save every one of those patients it makes a lot of difference 60 i mean i come in contact with 60 people in a 24-hour shift that's a lot of people just mm-hmm. imagine all those people you would save who are really just brushing off like eh, two percent whatever but yeah if you put it in that perspective it makes a lot of difference yeah that's that's very interesting so i think we're going to wrap it up for good on this one um i want to thank ben for hanging out with me um this might be something we try to do every month with just some topics that come out you know research comes out every day so it could be uh, a monthly thing we'll see how this one goes see if people like it um thank you ben for uh joining us today it's been awesome thank you for having me on the show i really enjoyed it um i think that uh staying on top of current evidence-based practices is incredibly important um so i was i'm really stoked to have the opportunity to come on and talk about these studies yeah awesome well thank you um that's going to be it for this episode guys and we'll see you uh next week thanks Thanks.